Welcome back to Butter With That, a movies podcast where some friends come together to talk about all things movies. Uh, happy Something movies. of a family, actually. Yeah. Oh, a- yes. Friends, family, all ringing in the new year loudly and brightly. We hope that everybody recovered from our Elvis episode over the holidays. <laughs> uh, that was our little Christmas treat. And... You know, over the holidays, I think probably most of us have seen some family and maybe got into some situations that were a little annoying. Maybe we had to leave the holidays early. Uh, Everyone can probably relate to dysfunctional families over the holiday season, which is kind of what brought us to the theme that we're kicking off 2023 with. What a wonderful uh, and bright theme to start. A new year, a butter with that. Uh, But before we get into my pick for our brand new theme in 2023. How's everybody doing? Has anybody seen uh, anything good recently? I know we all have some kind of time coming up off. So has anybody caught anything cool recently? Uh, A couple things I have to share. First thing, Dave, my mom asked me if she should watch the Elvis movie. And I (laughs) went, how much do you hate yourself? She was like, um, how, how do I handle that? How do I take that? And I was like, listen, if you want a good movie, don't watch it. If you just want to kill a little bit of time and are kind of curious, go ahead and watch it. She hasn't yet, but I'm I'm looking forward to hearing her thoughts because I, I do think she's going to end up watching it. So um, I'll let you know what she thinks. Eagerly awaiting more uh, more input. Yeah. <laughs> Um, anyway, so I've had a little bit of time off and I spent this past weekend at former Butter With That host Tori's house. I was dog sitting for her. And in that time, I decided, hey, I'm going to put my phone down and I'm actually going to like watch something and like really dive into it. And I realized that I'd never finished watching Midnight Mass and I like Mike Flanagan and I've, I've liked everything, um, before that so i rewatched the entire thing i connor we we can talk more about this but i actually really loved it and i and i think that like this is probably i don't i don't know if i like it more than hill house but i might i really enjoyed it and the the last aaron's last monologue had me crying on tori's couch i was like weeping and uh, her dog Spock was like, "What's the matter? What's going on?" And I was just like, "Don't worry, Spock. I'm fine. I just need to cry." It was beautiful. So controversial, maybe, but I I'm glad that I rewatched it. I'm glad to hear that you liked it. I'm I'm glad you liked it. I think I think I'm more in the minority of somebody who really didn't like it. But that is there are like great moments, and that definitely is is one of them for sure. I just think I couldn't not that we're not not to do a deep dive at all, but I just couldn't tell if the priest Hamish Linklater, if his performance was like the best of the year or the worst of the year. That's kind of how I felt about Midnight Mass in a lot of ways is like, is this really awesome or is this like awful? I think is where a lot of I kind of fell on in different choices and decisions and moments is kind of I think where I was at, if that makes sense. So going off that question of, is this the best performance or the worst performance? I recently watched a movie that I think falls under the same category slash question. So I watched Box Lux recently, which was a movie that came out in 2017 starring Natalie Portman. Have any of you guys heard of this movie? She was kind of coming out of her Black Swan period. And the movie is about a pop singer who survived a school shooting when she was young. And then she turns into like one of the most famous pop singers. And half of the movie is her in her childhood and then, or like in her middle school years. And then the second half is one day following this pop singer as she's trying to deal with um, putting on a performance in her hometown where the shooting happened and all of these other things that result. And the choices this movie makes are like, what are they thinking? 
and the choice. So her manager is played by Jude Law, and Jude Law is trying to do a Staten Island accent, and it's like the choices what? he makes, the choices Natalie Portman makes. I'm like, this is either a bonkers brilliant movie that's talking about like how the media handles mass shootings and like pop culture or it's the like worst movie ever made. And I still, I keep thinking about this movie and I still can't wrap my head around it. So like, if you guys watch it, I'd be so curious to know what you think. I think flat out, there are some performances that are categorically terrible, but like Natalie Portman is like kind of magnetic and the movie is just kind of so bizarre. So yeah, this is a question I just, or this is a movie I just can't get. What was the name of the movie? It's like, called Vox Lux. Oh, and it's narrated by Willem Dafoe. So over the course oh. of this whole movie, you have this sort of like story time with Willem Dafoe narration. It's absolutely bizarre. Well, this I, has all, all my antennas up, yeah. <laughs> I sense uh, getting a text from Dave over <laughs> the next couple of days with the, that you saw. Might be. Dave, if you watch it, I, I'm really curious to know what you think. Mm. Oh, this is from a few years ago. Oh my god, a budget of 11 million and box office of 1.4 million. Ouch. I just don't think any, I just, I didn't know what to make of it. I don't think anyone who probably saw it in the theaters knew what to make with it. I think there are some like, like also its depiction of a school shooting is also really uh, graphic. So like definitely content warning at the beginning. Uh, It's, it's, it's rough. Uh, so if you, yeah, like, that's also what I'll say as far as a uh, light recommend, I don't even know it's a recommend, but if you see it, know there are content warnings associated with this watching experience. I'm going to make a prediction about Butter with That Future. Dave is going to predict a, uh, Dave is going to ask if we can do a double feature theme, and he's going to pick Mass and uh, Vox Lux as his double feature pick. Oh, boy. That's my prediction. That's my New Year's prediction. I would be curious. I mean, I would say mass is like a sensitive, nuanced handling of uh, mass, like a school shooting. This one is sort of like take makes it spectacle, but like, okay, you know what? I'm going to save it. Dave, if you watch it, I'm curious to know what you think. Yeah, we'll see. Well, uh, curious was I in checking out a movie that's gotten a lot of attention, both uh, positive and negative, and that being Darren Aronofsky's new offering, The Whale. Brendan Fraser seems to uh, be on a pretty clear fast track to winning a lot of awards for it and turns in what is ultimately a pretty incredible performance. But having said that, I think that it is not enough to carry this movie across the finish line in terms of it being all that good or insightful. Uh, I think it's it's an adaption from a stage play. So it is sort of like um, just sort of like a, a one a one setting movie. Uh, that it doesn't really it it that doesn't really enhance anything about it. I think it is a movie that uh, thematically is a desperate cry for empathy that is very uh, cruel in its expression. So in that sense, I don't think it works. Uh, I'll be interested to see what folks think about it as they check it out. But uh, for me, it left me very cold, and I was not uh, very happy with it. Although I will say again that uh, Fraser is great. It's probably a second best performance that I have seen in a movie after. The Mummy, which I say not only out of my uh, disappointment with this movie and my love of The Mummy, uh, I, th- I think he's, you know, he's pitch perfect in The Mummy. Uh, in this, not so much, but uh, a great performance in an otherwise pretty choppy and not very good movie, in my opinion. That's a shame, because I was pretty um, impressed with the play when I read that a couple years ago. Uh, when I was studying the theater, uh, that play was pretty hot. So it was it was a it was a great play, and so uh, but I never saw it. So it's just I was curious. I was curious to see that this was making the stage to screen adaptation. But I'm happy that Brendan Fraser at least is getting his due, uh, long overdue, and hopefully this um, these accolades and acclaim allow him to work on many other high profile projects. I haven't been watching too much um, some true crime things here or there, uh, but I did watch all of Star Wars Andor. Uh, within like two days, um, I was pretty much over all the Disney Plus stuff. Like nothing was just really clicking with me. Uh, but everybody said I had to watch Andor. It's like, all right, I'll, I'll get to it. And then finally got to it. 
watched the first six episodes in like one night uh, and then finished the rest of it that week or like last week. So definitely recommend Andor. Probably the best thing that Disney has done with Star Wars since they bought it for $4 billion uh, years ago. So as much as I love the Mandalorian. Better than Mando? I that I think it's better than Mando. One thing that's really nice about Andor uh, is that it's not shot in the volume, which is like the giant indoor 360 degree screen that runs on like video game engine technology, which is great. Like the, the volume's a really great tool. But every Star Wars Disney Plus show has been in the volume until Andor, where they're on location building massive sets with hundreds of extras. Um, so it's just been it was great to go to a galaxy far, far away where. You can tell that people aren't just standing on a boulder that's about 20 feet wide in like every scene. Um, so I was really blown away with Andor. And if anybody has a vague interest in Star Wars, uh, like the original trilogy, espionage, spy thriller, political elements, I think Andor. I think I think you'll really like Andor. And then season two is going to be set like four years in the future and lead up to the events of Rogue One. So it's kind of interesting that they're not like milking it for se- it's like two seasons. We're jumping ahead. That's it. Kind of intrigues me. I haven't seen it yet, but high praise, so I've heard. Yeah, and even though it's 12 episodes, it says like 52 minutes. That's like 13 minutes of credits because the credits are in every language um, or like a dozen languages. So the episodes are a little bit shorter than the runtime scene on Disney Plus's app. But yeah, definitely uh, recommend Andor and would love to hear folks' thoughts on it. Sam, did you watch it? I watched the first episode, but... Uh... I loved it. I loved it. But I was like, oh, I have to pay attention. And I just really haven't been in that kind of place since then or at all because I stopped watching it. So it is I will I get there. I'll get there. But just when? Who knows? I feel like a little bit ago, I unwittingly set myself up for a transition of is it the best or is it the worst when talking about today's pick Krampus? This is the you know, when we were thinking about dysfunctional families, I just watched Krampus a few weeks ago, uh, like early December. So this is a new movie to me, one that I believe our former co-host Tori second shout out this episode. Uh, I think I think she really liked that movie. And we had a running bit in like our first couple of episodes of Krampus, because uh, that's how the grandmother pronounces it. So I think that brought back some memory. That triggered I could not hear it. Has she been taken by Krampus? Krampus has come. <laughs> Krampus has come for Sam. <laughs> so it was. Uh, I, am I correct? This was a running joke that we had many years ago about Krampus, how the grandma says it. Okay, cool. Not alone in this. So it, that was familiar. A nice early butter with that memory when we were all still recording in person many years ago. So this was a relatively new movie to me, and when we, you know, we're just throwing around the idea of dysfunctional families, I was like, this would be a fun one to talk about because. It really is, at the heart of it, a dysfunctional family that gets torn apart by a mythical creature, uh, which I'm really excited to to dive in deep with and to kind of break down and talk about some of my favorite moments and then uh, some moments that I don't think quite landed as well. But before we go any deeper, uh, let me just give a quick synopsis of what Krampus is for folks who are unfamiliar. Uh, Krampus released on December 4th, 2015. It's a Christmas horror comedy uh, based on um, you know, title character Krampus, which is a kind of like Central European Alpine folklore figure. The film was written and directed by Michael Doherty, who has worked on uh, various movies of the X-Men franchise, uh, including our favorite X-Men Apocalypse. Uh, I believe he was a co-writer. <laughs> Or co-producer. So he's had his hands in some Fox X-Men movies. Uh, so he wrote and directed this movie. Stars Adam Scott, Tony Collette, David Kochner, Allison Tolman, um, Contra Farrell, uh, MJ Anthony, and several others. So pretty small cast. Um, and essentially, uh, it's about a dysfunctional family whose squabbling causes a young boy to lose his festive spirit. Doing so, he unleashes the wrath of Krampus, a a fearsome horned demonic beast uh, in ancient European folklore who punishes naughty children at Christmas time. And as Krampus lays siege to the neighborhood, the family must band together to save one another from a monstrous fate. Thank you, Wikipedia, for that synopsis. Overall, I think Krampus was kind of lukewarmly received. 
Uh, but overall, definitely a box office hit. Budget of only $15 million. Worldwide gross of $61.5 million. And it probably did very well on DVD and VOD sales as well. So almost 10 years later, Krampus certifiably a hit, certainly financially, critically kind of mixed bag. But I think it has a pretty strong cult following uh, years after its release. Was this anybody's uh, first time encountering Krampus or had folks uh, seen it before? This was my first time. Nice. This is round two. I'd seen it in theaters at the time of its release, which I'm a little shaken to hear was nearly 10 years ago. (laughs) This was my first time watching it. And nearly 10 years ago has literally made me like vomit my mouth a little bit. Thanks a lot. (laughs) You know, Krampus just that's there are many layers to the gifts that Krampus uh, bestows upon the children of the world and a dreading sense of time moving forward. Unstoppably is uh, one of them. So what's kind of everybody's thoughts on Krampus? Um, I was pleasantly surprised at how much I enjoyed um, this movie. And so I just kind of want to hear other thoughts on, you know, I guess Dave, we'll start with you since you revisited it 10 years later, almost. How is your thought? Have your thoughts changed at all with Krampus or how do you feel about the film? Uh, I remember this ad campaign and friends of mine who are uh, more uh, into the uh, pagan roots of a lot of Christmas celebrations uh, in, you know, kind of a pointed way. Uh, we're very interested in checking this movie out. And uh, I'd seen the trailer and thought to myself, all right, well, we'll see how this goes. Looks like a horror movie with a little bit of comedy. At the time, I did not care for it and didn't think I was probably going to watch it again. Uh, watched it again and kind of still don't care for it, <laughs> if I'm being honest. I think it's um, it's strangled by its PG-13 rating uh, in the sense that it can never be too violent or uh, too it, it, it restricts like, you know, the vocabulary of comedy among, you know, a lot of actors that we know and love to swear on screen. <laughs> um, so I think that uh, it's, to its, it's to its detriment and really, really dings the movie a lot. I think it gets very middling in the middle portion of the movie. But I will say that uh, some of the practical effects uh, and some of the creature design is pretty fantastic and uh, some actually genuinely pretty chilling moments. So on the whole, not quite my thing, but uh, not, you know, not terrible, (laughs) I guess. Sometimes for Dave, I think that's a win for a pick if that's uh, the review I get. (laughs) Uh, Christine or Sam, thoughts on your first time encountering the mythical horned beast Krampus? Uh, yeah, I I don't consider myself a violent person by any means. Uh, but when I am through watching a movie, constantly wishing that, like, I kept saying as I was watching this movie, this movie will get five stars if everyone dies at the end of the movie and it's, it's that's it. And it almost so happened. Close. Oh, so close. And then the ending was just like, of course. <laughs> And so I think I think I agree with Dave in that, like, I feel like there would have been a lot more possibilities for like fun if it was like if it could go into the R sort of horror. Like, I feel like a lot of like stuff happened outside of the frame, which is fine. Once again, I'm like, I'm not like a gore obsessed person, but it it I don't know if the movie's dialogue could like support its reason for being. Unless it was like just super like a blood fest, I guess, is like kind of what my idea is. I love that description. (laughs) Also, and like the fact that Adam Scott can only say cluster F, it's like, okay, this is definitely a PG-13. We walk so close to so many F-bombs that are blatantly dodged, yeah. Definitely reminded me of a time where... I mean, this is not even that long ago, but I feel like if Krampus was pitched and made today, it would be an easy R rating. But back in the day, it just seemed like Taken wasn't, even though that was before Krampus, like Taken, I feel like was a movie with Liam Neeson begging for an R rating uh, that was really kind of hamstrung by a PG-13 rating. That's just what, off the top of my head, what this is reminding me of. What I will say, though, is the the little like Coraline-esque animation in the middle, really cute. And I was like, ooh, this could have been fun, like, as an animation. I also loved the costuming at the end. Like, all of the actual Krampus lore was so fun. And I was like, oh, if this was, like, kind of like a Jim Henson horror take on Krampus, that would be 
I feel like so fun. And I really love the Laura Krampus. I had a friend who lived in like Austria and she used to love to talk about like <laughs> how weird Krampus is. And so I would say the, the like, uh, once you get to see Krampus and all of the little mini Krampuses, that, that I was like on board. Uh, I did not like this movie at all. I'm so sorry, Connor. I, I really, I'm feeling for you right now. I've been in this position before. So like, this sucks. I'm sorry, but I did not like it. And uh, like, what a waste of Tony Collette. And also I'm like, I don't know. I feel like I've reached a point where I'm like really tired of using like fatness as like the butt of a joke and i think that that was true with like the sisters family a lot like the the one kid like dies or disappears or whatever because he's eating a fucking gingerbread man and like that i i just i don't like that i'm I'm done i'm over it a lot of and, thoughts on the family um, stuff with that yeah too yeah yeah however uh what did make it bearable was hearing you connor in my head going the whole time so i'm happy i could provide you that sam uh i can't say i disagree with any of these negative takes um which i think is what made me interested to pick krampus 2015 because i think that the movie sort of divided into three parts and I think there are some parts in each that work well, and then many parts in like the front half that do not work very well. But I thought this would be an interesting one. And we got one hell of a dysfunctional family, both on the page, written as, and then um, I think as you know the final cut. So I thought this would be an interesting pick to kick off Dysfunctional Family Month. So what I thought we'd do is kind of go through each of the three kind of parts, phases that the movie moves through um, and kind of break down kind of what we think and so with part one we kind of get your traditional white family sad boy christmas kind of prelude part so i i actually so i guess from the very top i just wanted to bring up uh the opening scene so the movie opens with uh the credits of just people overrunning a walmart essentially like it like images that you see like on black friday shopping people running over each other uh, ripping toys out of each other's hands. And I thought this was a really great tone piece to set up the idea of like, this movie's about losing the spirit of Christmas and how as a society, we will pay for uh, our selfishness, our greed, and that Krampus will take all from us because we quite frankly deserve Krampus's wrath. So I guess just, even though, you know, just the very top, I just wanted to see what you guys thought of how this movie opens and this opening sequence and how we're introduced to our family. Well, yeah, I agree that it sets the stage for like the corruption and commercialization of Christmas, uh, modernity versus tradition, all of the themes that we're going to be uh, very well driven in uh, as the film continues within an opening sequence. Uh, it's, you know, like you said, it's people swarming this, uh, this like Walmart or just some shopping center and like, really gnashing at each other people like clawing at each other over things to like buy this the, in, the inherent stress of how christmas is commercialized and i do think it's an effective open but the one thing that i think detracts from it is that it is very very choreographed and meticulously blocked so though it is impressive it doesn't feel chaotic it feels calculated but uh, i get what they're going for i guess i i like uh, I liked the opening. I thought it set the tone for something that was going to be sort of fun and farcical. And then I think when we, I don't know, at, once we meet the kid, I was just like, oh. <laughs> 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 and so I, I, and, but like the sad thing is he's supposed to be like the heart of the movie, you know, like he's supposed to be embodying the spirit of Christmas but I just couldn't get on board with his like innocence and like, all I want my, all I want for Christmas is my family to like get along and I'm the peacekeeper in my fit. Like, you know, I get along with my German speaking grandma and I, yeah, I, I, that isn't a fully formed thought, but I thought the tone was a little bit, it was a jarring shift from like something that I thought was going to be kind of like, kind of like satirical and kind of like fucked up. And then it like hits you with sort of like a character you're supposed to be rooting for right from the get go. And I, I was, it got me a little suspicious. 
kids are tough. I, and I think this movie does kids not. Like I, having your child be the protagonist—it's it, it, a tough, I think, um, like role to fill. And we have numerous great examples, like um, Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone. Uh, he's absolutely phenomenal in that as your like warm-hearted protagonist because he does have a bit of an edge, a little like you know he's like enjoying being home alone. So and he's the innocence, a troublemaker, and that's what makes him fun to root for. And so I think the with the Engel family, Max uh, played by MJ Anthony. I just think he does it. I, I feel like I was needing like a little edge there. And I, I think overall there's like interesting, uh, if not stereotypical family dynamics going on. So we have Max Engel, who's our protagonist, our little kid. Uh, Adam Scott is his dad, Tom. Tony Collette plays his mom, Sarah. I love the idea of Tony Collette and Adam Scott as like a married couple. Uh, and I wish that the film, we get some, some business. <laughs> I just love that idea. And I, I, I wish that that was, I guess this movie is like just a lot of like, yeah, a lot of Christmas wishes that it could be. And <laughs> for me, I, I think that there's a lot of like strong thought set up, if not kind of weak execution is sort of how I feel about um, the Engel family. But I do think the relationship between Max and his uh, Omi, his grandmother who only speaks German, except at like two minutes <laughs> for a two minute section in the middle of the movie, which I thought was kind of funny. I loved the aunt when she's like, English, I knew it. (laughs) And so this is our kind of core family. Oh, and Beth as well, um, Max's sister. Uh, So this is kind of like our core family unit. We get to know them a little bit. Um, And then it's three days before Christmas. And then we meet Tom's brother-in-law, his family, or Linda, sorry, Linda. The family's trying to keep this straight. So Allison Tolman is Linda, who is the sister of Sarah, and then her cantankerous husband, David uh, Kochner, who's absolutely uh, hilarious generally, kind of does his normal shtick uh, in this movie. The gun-toting, uh, beer-chugging, uh, kind of Uncle Eddie vibe from Christmas Vacation, the vacation mm-hmm. movie. So definitely mm-hmm. Uncle Eddie vibes, but can never really take it as far as Randy Quaid could take it. Uh, as this family kind of invade, you know, every Christmas they come over, invade the house, along with... Um, Conchata Farrell as Aunt Dorothy, uh, who is not really invited, kind of worms her way in when um, Linda goes to see her. And it's probably one of the best roles in the movie. Definitely someone who was enjoyable to watch, who's just at odds with everybody else and doesn't really give a fuck. Uh, and then children as well coming in who don't get along with Max, clearly. Poor Max is just picked on relentlessly. Uh, for believing in Santa still, even though he's, what, about 9 or, or about 10, 11? Probably a little old to be believing in Santa. So kind of thoughts as we're moving through quickly about this initial kind of family setup. Overall, kind of understand the stress of, like, this family coming in for Christmas. I don't know why people do that to themselves at all, letting annoying family members into Christmas. But such is the nature of the holiday season. So I guess just overall thoughts on this initial setup and these family dynamics, both good and certainly lots of uninteresting or bad. Any kind of thoughts there? Uh, I think this movie is sort of, you know, it, someone asking what if Christmas vacation was a horror movie? Uh, it, it cribs uh, so much from that dynamic via uncle Eddie and the extended family. They're portrayed as like, you know, one of the, one of the children is like chubby or uh, Sam, as you pointed out, or like, chubby and unresponsive but by whatever standard it seems that the movie's presenting it that way the camo clad wrestling jackets on the two girls are Steelers fans uh and also just smacks of like that kind of like uh, for me that sort of like overtread like neoliberal like suburban civilization versus backwoods backwardsness uh snobs versus slobs kind of thing that I am not a big fan of and find pretty classist and annoying and i think it never it never provides itself the opportunity in, in, in if it's going to pursue that to have any real teeth about it because it is st- uh, in this pg-13 limbo so it can't really push many buttons it just sort of presents it in a way that feels a little bit like underbaked or like they can't really put their thumb on it exactly uh i also think this movie is very derivative of other films uh as we'll go on but yeah that's that was my big uh issue with the whole family thing i guess Although uh, they certainly are dysfunctional, so it does fit the theme. Dysfunctional indeed. Yeah, I was definitely feeling Christmas Vacation, numerous other movies as well with the setup. But I 
I did enjoy, and I, I did really like the inciting incident of the movie where San, uh, Max has this his Santa letter, little too old to be celebrating Santa, his cousin steal it, read this letter aloud, and he just wants his family to get along for Christmas. I mean, don't we all? And it turns out that he lists the problems that everybody has with each other, like how his um, uncle wants his daughters to be sons. Um, that's kind of like the big one that sets folks off. And so I, th- I thought that the setup was really amusing uh, to kick off why this boy kind of feels like he's ruined Christmas, that Christmas is ruined. And ultimately, he takes his Santa letter, tears it up, throws it out the window. And that's what summons Krampus to destroy the neighborhood. So I, I I actually really liked what this inciting incident was of Max making a decision to abandon Christmas spirit at his own peril uh, because of his fucked up family and uh, just really writing a pretty sincere note uh, and that just embarrasses everybody and calls everybody out on the shit that they don't want to talk about. I do have some questions about what summons Krampus for real. So this Krampus lore. So when the kid tears up his letter. How is he summoning Krampus? Because based on what the grandmother explained, Krampus comes when the kid is like, I wish nobody was around anymore. And Krampus is like, yeah, everyone's been bad. You know, I'm going to like take out this town or whatever. It's a real, yeah. I made my family disappear. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um. But Rit, this kid was just, he was just embarrassed and he just shred his note. And so I was like, how, how would that have summoned Krampus? And also like, how was the rest of his neighborhood involved? They really weren't, unless the implication is that this scene is happening in every single other home in that neighborhood. I think it seems to suggest that like, especially via like the family and everyone kind of being like, maybe he's too old to believe in this and everything. And they're, you know, the cousins are kind of picking at him about it. Is that like he was the last one that believed in the like genuine Christmas magic, so to speak. And that being the final straw of like, I guess, an entire community that we assume that's the case of. I, I don't know. I, I was reminded of, you know, where, you know, Santa Claus is always watching. He's checking his list twice. I think Krampus has similar powers uh, where he's kind of always watching omnipre- omnipresent, knows everything. You know, that letter, you know, because Adam Scott's like, you know, it's really important to love your family, even though you hate them. It's like, but why do we have to? It's like, because they're your family. And he's like, fuck that. Tearing up my letter to Santa. I don't want my family to get better. Throws it out the window, summoning Krampus. That's kind of how I saw that he was rejecting the Christmas spirit, rejecting any sense of loving family, which just like Krampus just wants to like nibble. Just eat eat that energy up. And the whole community. I, I think Krampus doesn't, you know, he takes no prison. Well, I guess we'll get to taking prisoners. That idea. <laughs> he kind of does in his cauldron of despair. Uh, but, uh, you know, he exacts vengeance on the whole town. He is not, he doesn't care about the lives of mortals or humans. He's like, I've been summoned to this community. I'm going to wreak havoc and consume this entire community. And I think we can assume that similar situations Certainly at my family Christmases throughout most of my life, uh, dysfunctional situations have popped up. So while I don't want to say it's a commentary on the nature of family, every family at Christmas, maybe it doesn't go too deep. That's kind of how I read it of why the whole town is consumed in this uh, blizzard that really just covers the entire town or community and feet and feet and feet of snow seemingly out of nowhere. I'm just obsessed with the idea that you could be someone who's just living in that town and you're like, God damn it. Jimmy fucking hates Christmas again. I'm obsessed. (laughs) It's just like an annual thing. It's like the fucking Arctic blast comes in and it's like, ah, it's always that one family, the angles. It's always the the angles. (laughs) They, they fucking bring Krampus around. Krampus, you know, takes all of our shit from our kitchen, takes us, makes a mess of things, puts knives through our gingerbread cookies every fucking year. That is, okay, that question. is a great point, Sam. <laughs> question. Krampus, only a, a fear for people of German heritage? As an Italian, like, would I be fine from Krampus? What, like... Again, the lore, 
what are my chances of safety? I mean, you could even live with just one German neighbor, neighbor of German ancestry and you're fucked. Well, this is getting questionable pretty fast, but anyway, I do think, I think as the, as the movie, you know, rounds out at the end, it, it does feel like the family themselves are trapped, perhaps even in a snow globe, uh, in a way that has like isolated them from their community. Maybe this is happening within some like, um, like netherworldian bubble or something like that. I don't know if it actually affects the community writ large or if it's like their experience of it is so inescapable that those other people are erased to them and they to them. Like, I'm not sure what those rules are, especially because of the ending. Right. Well, clearly, this is like in little Angle Jr.'s brain or whatever. And is it? Or like, I don't know. Or it's in a snow globe of many uh, trapped family snow globes. One of which, I guess, reportedly is if you look, one of the snow globes is the uh, Bates house next to the Bates Motel, which is interesting. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but I love all these questions (laughs) about the lore of Krampus. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I love doing Butter with that is just diving deep on movies that don't think that deeply (laughs) about. Also funny because the thing we're struggling to like reason the lore of is explained in the next movement, but it's difficult to connect to what we're discussing right now, which is a problem. <laughs> so as this inciting incident happens, Max throws his torn up letter out the window. Uh, we, you know, go toward one day closer to Christmas. And all of a sudden, as we discussed, a huge blizzard comes in. Sam, you mentioned the DHL driver. He gets caught up in this too. And the sudden blizzard out of nowhere, just, covers this neighborhood and eventually feet and feet of snow and then we also see a mysterious giant red sack on the front porch which is just attributed to just oh they're rich lots of presents bring them in nobody questions the giant just sack of toys that's that's just left on the front porch nobody ever asks about it i think a pretty uh clever way for krampus to worm his way into the homes of folks just leaving presents on the front door and you know, nowadays, maybe he would do it for Amazon, just come up with his own Amazon boxes and nobody would be any wiser. Just put Secret Santa on it or somebody's random house in the name and then nobody would open it. Nobody would touch it because they didn't want to mess with each other's gifts. OK, uh, sorry we were talking about uh, UPS and all of that. What it was with this fucking mail delivery service product placement? You have the DHL guy coming and delivering and then he goes. He makes some reference to UPS by being like, oh, our, the, the boys in brown, which I assume is UPS, which I was like, what's going on here? It was like, of course, the DHL guy would be uh, out in the middle of the Arctic blast delivering presents. Anyhow, I thought that delivery service product placement was kind of strange. Very specific, which I think made it pretty funny that it was just this random specific uh, jab at UPS or DHL guy. Uh, so the whole neighborhood does not have any power. So all that they have are just the candles and then the fireplace, which becomes very important in the home. Um, and so they have all this food, but no electricity, no power, one tablet. And it turns out the whole neighborhood's this way. Beth, who's a daughter, wants to go find her boyfriend, which then, all right, they relent and let her go out. And she's our first casualty in the Krampus onslaught. She goes just a few blocks down to try to find her boyfriend, sees a jack-in-the-box, which is really probably the most terrifying toy ever created. Never understood the appeal of a little puppet that hides inside of a metal box that sings to you and then jumps out. But this creature will become quite pivotal pivotal later in the film and my favorite creature in the entire movie, the jack-in-the-box. He has a specific name. What was his name? It's um, the uh, Dare Clown. So in the credits, he's credited as Dare Clown, this eventual, <laughs> we'll see, puppet, jack-in-the-box creature. So A clown. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Dare Clown. Dare Clown. It's like a Kraftwerk uh, single. <laughs> so, you know, really quickly, we realize the whole neighborhood's fucked. Can't see anybody. Beth just mysteriously disappears. Hours pass. Nobody knows what's happening. And then uh, the invasion kind of really starts. And as we move through the night, this is a pretty, I think, brutal attack. I don't know how I would survive this Krampus attack, but the family tries to put up their best fight. Thank God that David Kochner 
uh, has guns and his giant Hummer. It's a Hummer, I believe. Um, and Lucinda, I think he calls it. Lucinda. He has a name for his Hummer, of course. So just kind of any, anybody have any thoughts as we're kind of moving kind of quickly through setting up Krampus, taking over, invading the town? Uh, I think we're skipping over two big things. Um, one of which is uh, when we first see Beth, you know, going out and, and charting a course and it suddenly becomes like impossibly dark which is really cool. This blizzard is intensifying around her in some like really like unrealistic, but like meaningful ways. And then she first spots Krampus. It's the first time that we see him pretty basically in silhouette, this giant robed figure with horns perched upon one of the houses, just like emitting this like steam breath in the cold air. And then as she starts running, it starts jumping from rooftop to rooftop with these loud clomps this is when the movie's really going full steam and is really actually very frightening because it's so clear that she cannot outrun this thing. And then it's paired, uh, Connor, as you said, with this menacing Jack in the box. That whole scene is is really pretty fantastic. And it, it was one of those things, too, where like even though I'd seen it once watching it again, which maybe speaks to how I didn't remember it very well in, in some ways, is that uh, she's she's like the first one that we see like being attacked by a thing and then it leaves her and cuts away so we assume it's like the first on-screen death which i thought was interesting because we're only like maybe 20 minutes into the movie and one of the central figures of this family is being taken out and i thought to myself like it's gonna be really clever when they come back and rescue them later and then they don't because everyone is killed which is kind of great uh the other thing we're skipping over is the entire middle portion of this movie where we're waiting for the attacks to happen in the house, which is kind of necessary to bond the family, like this dysfunctional family comes together in crisis out of necessity, but also learns a lot about how each of them are individually practical in a survival situation, which is is cool. But it goes on for so long that the movie really deflates before we get to these monsters showing up at the very end. It felt to me a lot, Sam or uh, Heather or Kara, if you're listening, uh, like the middle portion of Maximum Overdrive, where it's like. Can we get out of this fucking gas station? So I felt a little bit of that here. It's punctuated, though, by this Henry Selleck-esque Nightmare Before Christmas animatic, the stop-motion animatic explaining, like, the backstory via the grandmother who is, like, informed about all this stuff and sets the stage for what's actually happening. And I just, like, thought to myself, like, you just couldn't stay away from Nightmare Before Christmas, too. You had to mind that also, especially because the monsters that show up in the next part that we're going to talk about are almost like page for page out of that. Like there's the monstrous teddy bear, the scary Jack in the box, weaponized Christmas lights. I've seen this before, albeit with some great practical effects, which I'm looking forward to talking about in this last bit. You know, when we first see Beth go, uh, there was a part of me that was like, was he even after her? Because like, obviously he was, but like she just starts running and he's like running parallel to her on the rooftops. I was just like, girl, leave him alone. Maybe he's not after you. Maybe he's just there. And then I like, <laughs> and then I started thinking about, okay, what Krampus is like, like, what does he do in the in-between time? Like, I, I want to know, now I don't want to know about the lore. Now I want to know about him as a person. And like, not to be like Guillermo del Toro about this, but like, is he is Kramp like how on the hotness scale about Krampus? Like, <laughs> how are we feeling? Because <laughs> you know, like, you know, whatever, whatever. We can get there later. I I'm just putting it out there. Got to check it out on Ghoul Tinder <laughs> or whatever. I guess Krampus, hot or not? I mean, we get a nice, we get a nice view of Krampus towards the end, like the full, mm -hmm. you know. The full frontal or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong term. <Dear> Lord. <laughs> but we we do get a good view of him. And, you know, he's doing his thing. Yeah, I think in this part there are some, like the, the, the Krampus chase, I think that there are, this is, throughout a movie where it's not terribly effective in ways, I think there are, as Davey brought up, some really uh, great moments and it kind of reminded me of like a zombie movie too like zombie survival movie where everybody has to band together technology's running out uh but where did everybody get this plywood from That's... i mean this is the thing in so many <laughs> movies but they board up all their windows you know they like wood on the doors it's like where did you're it... saying that you're not prepared for the end days with a big stack of lumber in your basement because uh yeah. you should really work on that the holidays are coming i don't well, live in florida i'm sorry i don't live in florida so can't <laughs> Can't prepare at a moment's notice. 
And it's like as kind of slow as the movie is in the middle sections, somehow they boarded up those windows in like five minutes. And so it's like you didn't have that wood lying around, nor were you prepared in a span of five to 20 minutes to completely board up those, like, like in a zombie. Movie. I think, yeah, it definitely had that vibe. And I also liked when, um, when Tom and Howard uh, went to go look for Beth and then they investigate the homes. And then you just see, I love that there's a gingerbread guy that has the knife in him on the like cork board or in the wall. There's like, like Michael the, Myers just came yeah. through, yeah. <laughs> and it's like clearly Krampus just or his minions just enjoying taunting folks coming through. And we do see that their chimney is blown out. Uh, like the bricks, it exploded. So we got some good setup for what's coming and the importance of the fireplace. So I think for a lot of this movie, it's kind of like one step forward and kind of like a half or three fourth steps back in some ways. Like in my for every good moment. Some things check back, but this middle part, while slow, and that's kind of why we're going through it a little quickly, uh, I think has some gems. And Omi, finally, Dave's you brought up, tells a story, speaks English, uh, which and Dorothy points out that she knew all along that I guess she could do that. Um, I don't really mind that it ripped from Nightmare Before Christmas. I think it's like a cool, I would just wish the film did more interesting tonal or stylistic shifts like this. Like if you're going to do it once... I feel like you have to find ways to like incorporate more. I don't know. It's kind of how I feel about it. But Omi, she's a, a Krampus survivor. She was left to spread the tale of Krampus dragging her family to hell, uh, which is wonderfully dark. Uh, and unfortunately, as we've mentioned a few times, this movie's trapped in PG-13 land. Maybe if it was rated R, we would have gotten a little more about what happens. I don't know. But her family's dragged to hell and she somehow... Krampus lets her live and gives her the little Krampus bell ornament that probably won't pose any significant um, you know, plot point at all in the next hour of the film. It's a great animatic. One thing, though, that I did think also is like, I'll, you know, I'll be a little derivative as an animatic, but at any rate, uh, the one thing that I did think was most funny, too, is Adam Scott's character, Tom, has nothing to say about the until now untold story of his mom's entire family being dragged into the underworld by a holiday demon. He's just kind of like, huh, I didn't know that, Mom. <laughs> well, I, there was so, there's a look in his eye. Every time he looks at, his, looks at his mom, I feel like there's this knowing exchange. And I'm like, oh, he's going to reveal something. Either he's like, he knows like everything that's, I, I guess it is to suggest that he knows something sinister happened, obviously, with his mother and like what's going to happen. But. There was going to be more knowing uh, or revealing of how much he actually knew and was trying to like keep it from his family. Like I thought this was like a family secret that not only the grandmother was keeping, but that maybe like he was wrestling with and dealing with, but he's just sort of clueless and stupid this whole movie, basically. Not a lot of depth, unfortunately. Or that so, maybe he had made a deal with Cro I was ready for some like shady dealings with Michael Scott as a father. Michael Scott. Michael Scott. Oh my god. Fucking what's his name? What what what's what's the actor's name? Adam Scott. Adam Scott. Steve Carell plays Michael Scott on Steve the Carell. That would be yeah. <laughs> a, a layered performance. So we also get our second death kind of in this moment as well. And that's Howie Jr. Sam, you brought this up earlier. Uh, he is Lord. There's a giant hook, comically large hook that just gets brought down the chimney. And over the past couple minutes, you know, in a few different scenes, we hear like pitter patter on the roof, not reindeer hooves, Krampus. Krampus hooves. <laughs> um, and so Howie Jr. gets lured by a gingerbread, uh, which is a horrifying CG creature uh, that lures him to bite him gets the hook on him and drags him up the chimney. I thought it was kind of funny with Tony, just the, uh, just the visual of Tony Collette trying to prevent a child from being dragged up a chimney by Krampus. Like just the like audience member watching Tony Collette having to do this. I just thought, I don't know, was just mildly amusing, but we learned that Krampus has a whole bag of tricks to try to one by one, pick apart this family um, as they're struggling to survive. And Krampus is able to do this because the fire place is going out and apparently the fireplace is the one thing that can really ultimately keep krampus at bay so 
for me, this is when the movie started to turn into becoming a little more interesting as we discover that Krampus has these creatures, which uh, before it really just seemed like this Krampus. He had this jack-in-the-box toy, but we didn't really get a sense of who exactly his friends are that he's bringing uh, to this war on the neighborhood. But I kind of like the the gingerbread creatures. And now we're sort of moving um, into the third phase of the movie, which is the total assault on the house. Throughout the movie, Krampus is able to use Beth's voice to lure different characters around. Uh, and at this point, um, the gifts are just brought upstairs. People are investigating. And then Kramp, you know, his gifts got inside the house. And Stevie and Jordan are lured into the attic by Beth's voice. Um, and then we get to meet my favorite character, favorite creature in the entire movie. And that is Der Clown, a giant jack-in-the-box who has a predator-like you know, ceramic mouth. And he has little hands that he claps and enjoys all of the Krampus haunting festivities. Um, we also meet a robot who attacks Adam Scott, other creatures as well. Um, oh, yeah, I, there's just a robot. So this is a robot. I mean, I really like the inventiveness of Krampus and the twisted uh, Santa Claus nature of him. If he does bring gifts, but they're going to kill you. And this uh, Dare Clown just wholly ingests like a giant snake, um, these kids. And he's just so happy about it. Uh, David Kochner also has to fight off an army of these gingerbread men uh, who have a nail gun, which was used to put up. So I just kind of enjoyed as we're sort of descending into the chaos of Krampus invading the home, um, all of these toys that are, have come to life and are kidnapping them or are attacking them. But that's that's not the end of the of Krampus's armies, because we also meet his elves as well, who are these wonderfully dressed uh, actors coming in uh, who I can't even like the script. It's, it's dark. It's hard to get a look, but they're just these festive creatures who just love mayhem. Uh, these wonderful masks, wonderful costumes. So I just want to get your guys' thoughts on Krampus's army, uh, his friends that he brings along um, on his hunts of families. What do we think of this scene, of the action, of their clown ingesting children whole, little feet going down his gullet? I had, like, stopped, like, not that I was, like, not paying attention, but I definitely wasn't paying as much attention as I could have been. And so I was, like, partner around doing whatever i look back up and i just see feet going down the gullet and i was like what has happened so i had to rewind a little bit and then i was still even after i had seen it i was like what has happened <laughs> um so i mean it was kind of that part was kind of fun i guess like this is probably for me at least the best part of the movie yeah this creature design is pretty uh pretty fantastic honestly especially the yeah the jack-in-the-boxes we discussed Dirk clown this like cold and unfeeling yet still blinking ceramic face on top of which yeah there's this like very organic and like otherworldly like demon mouth i like that it's basically silent like you said it just mimes and claps here and there which is really menacing i think all this stuff's great and i think when they're when they're really like confronting these things which are physical props um it it really kind of finds its feet that being said, like 45% of the action is people pulling puppets off of other people. So there's a lot of that. But the practical effects, uh, I have to say, are, are pretty fantastic and some really great creature design. Apparently, it's also two of the gingerbread men were Seth Green and uh, Justin Roiland of uh, Robot Chicken and uh, Rick and Morty fame, respectively. So you have a lot of like comedian blood and like Adult Swim-esque kind of blood flowing through this movie, which I, I appreciate. Yeah, the creatures were my favorite part. Um, I wish the creatures had assembled early on in the movie, or if the movie had like it felt. It feels like kind of two different movies. It like the back end really feels like it's about, as Dave was saying, the creature design and having fun with some practical effects, which is fun and isn't. Oh, I feel like movies that really rely, except for the thing, which can achieve both like like gross out gruesome shit and like immense practical effects i feel like okay i i won't do generalize a ton of movies can successfully do it but if the movie had been more about like sort of the inventive nature of the like creature lore and had had kind of integrated that throughout i feel like tonally it would have made more sense but by the time we actually see these creatures fully realized i get it in a narrative sense of like building su suspense but like 
it just felt a little bit like it was a different movie that was then happening. Like the first half felt like kind of like a slick kind of like family drama. And then this is like kind of like a creative kind of folklore horror. And yeah, I, I thought it was jarring, but I did love seeing all the creatures. So it was definitely uh, worth the wait to see them. And I think the tonal shift like could work in a better screenplay. So like I see the foundation of like you lure the you lure the the audience in with like the first 20 minutes or the slick family drama or you know a Christmas vacation kind of knockoff. But I feel like that hard turn into some kind of Dave, you brought up like a Jim Henson kind of route, or maybe so some kind of like big puppet movie route or big kind of I feel like the shift in like having these kind of wacky creatures and puppets comes way too late in the runtime where you could have done a really interesting tonal shift going from act one into like act two of the film. But I feel like bringing this energy into act three, while I really appreciated it and really enjoyed it, I feel like was a little too late for a lot of the, at least for the, I think the benefit of the movie just came in kind of a little too late. Cause I feel like the work we did, cause a lot of this movie is working hard to like make us like the family and they're coming together. Uh, Howard even says, um, I forget the exact line, but uh, he comes around on, Adam Scott's character and is like, oh, I, you know, okay, I see you're a man, you're standing up, a shepherd's got to defend his flock. That's a line that gets thrown around a few times. Uh, but I think for me, a lot of those moments do kind of fall flat. And while this family, I think, does attempt to come together, uh, I think ultimately Krampus is just too overpowering of a force. I'd say real quickly, one thing that would be a nice glue for this, and again, it's the PG-13 getting in the way, is if when it becomes like, uh, like creature as like a surviving creatures kind of horror movie. If we could lean into swearing, mm -hmm. that would help uh, because there are multiple instances in this, like the last third of the movie where we're getting, like we're saying like, uh, like almost like a yippee mother and then stopping or someone just shouts fudger. And it's like, you're so close. You, you could maybe push it over the edge if you stick to that, but they just don't have the, uh, the rating to do it. I don't even think we get one F-bomb, which you can get in PG-13. Right, yeah. So I don't even and it's just like, pick one instead of obfuscating it three times. Especially if, if you're going to go into like a full tilt, like kind of like badass, the family is now taking the helm and dealing with this kind of action movie. Like, you got you to curse a little for my taste. I don't know. I think that could have sold it. No, I'm with you. And I think if the beginning of the, you know, first, you know, third is like more family friendly, then just descends, mm -hmm. maybe you can play around the set, the house chain, you know, Krampus can clearly manipulate weather, reality. I, I think that there's a lot of potential that unfortunately just doesn't quite get tapped into. Uh, but then we see the big guy himself. Then we see Krampus, who then has a confrontation with Omi, which... I thought it was kind of nice. So when we still had the bell, Krampus comes down the chimney face first. Bold way to climb down a chimney. That was um, something that I took note of. A bold way to climb down a chimney. Um, and Omi ultimately sacrifices herself because the plan is let's have everybody run to the snowplow. Uh, the snowplow will be able to get us, I believe, to a hospital where uh, certainly we can find help there. So kind of a nice moment where Omi, we get some FaceTime. Christine, as you mentioned, some full frontal action from Krampus uh, with Omi. I have one thing about the snowplow. Secretly, I was hoping this movie existed in the um, snow day universe. That like in the neighborhood, the snow day is happening. And on the other half of the neighborhood, all of the neighbors are just getting eaten by Krampus. And so the snow, like the obsession with the snowplow just made me think about snow day. And I don't think the snow was real. This look, the snow looked fake as shit. The snow is uh, reportedly the stuff uh, diapers are made out of. Yum. What? <laughs> what are... Nice. Ooh, better than asbestos, I guess. <laughs> I would hope so. Well, like all the old movies with snow, apparently. Oh, really? Like, maybe, fact Best check we're wrapping up. We meet Krampus. Grandma sacrifices herself to delay time. But ultimately, all of this is futile as folks get picked off one by one. There's moments of heroic sacrifice that ultimately mean nothing. Because then it's Max and his cousin. They're inside the plow. Cousin gets picked off. And Krampus decides to have Max be the one survivor. 
this made me think is the one who summons Krampus, the one who gets to survive, which I think is kind of like an interesting lore moment. And he gets the Krampus ornament wrapped up in his torn up letter, which I thought was like an interesting moment. My toxic trait is that I think uh, Krampus would let me be the one who lives and or I would just be like the additional one. Like I would just be alive and then there would be the person who summoned him. Um, Once again, to be Guillermo del Toro about this, but, you know, I'd, I'd live. It's fun. But this movie does the strangest thing. Like we see him finally confront Krampus. And give him this ornament wrapped in his, you know, his former letter, as we discussed, the symbol that like, hey, you know, you're going to tell the tale now because you were the one that find- was the last person to take this for granted. But then it just cuts like it goes to black. And then we just see Max walking around somewhere else in the snowscape and running into Krampus again, who then throws Max to his doom like everyone else. So, like, he doesn't actually leave anyone alive. He just he kills brilliant. them all. When he threw Max into the fiery pit, I was like, all right. It's cool, but, like, I'm so confused by, like, the import of, like, him giving them the ornament and then it fading to black, which, and then they're, like, he has to reapproach Krampus and all his, like, ghoul squad. So it's like, did Max just walk away? Did Krampus say, like, silently, like, all right, I'll see you in a few minutes. Like, why did we cut there? It's odd. That is an odd editing choice, but I did really love his ghoul squad. Of you go up and you see the like skeleton mammoths, they're just having a giant all turn around, like on the other side. Yeah, it was definitely yeah crashing the party, and like the cruelty of like all of them. That's very like humorous. Like you know, he makes the appeal like I've learned my lesson, and then they all laugh to themselves just before he's thrown into the pit with everyone. That's pretty great. And when and like you get, I really love the face of the Krampus design. Like you get a really good close up of his eyes. This T, it's very detailed. And he takes his big Grinch like finger. It's like, oh, maybe Krampus was moved by Max's plea to bring his family back. It's too late, kid. It's way <laughs> too late. Which I kind of love the like, like the really cynical bent of the themes. Like it's fucking too late. Your family's dysfunctional as fuck. You wished for this to happen. You're getting your wish. Takes his tear off with his big claw and just laughs at him. Everybody just laughs at Max as he gets tossed into hell at a pit that Krampus was able to open up in the middle of the street. So I just kind of just loved how just cynical that moment was of like too late kid, which then brings us to our ending where Max wakes up. Oh, it was all a dream. Everybody is so happy on Christmas morning, but not all is right. Gets a present, opens it up. Of course, it's the Krampus bell. And everybody, it seems like they start to remember maybe what happened before. Mm. Kind of ambiguous of exactly what's going on in everyone's minds. And then we pan out to see that it's just a snow globe in Krampus's uh, closet, his room, somewhere wherever he lives 364 days a year. And we see dozens and dozens and dozens of other snow globes. Is this a purgatory? Is this, did he collect their souls? Did he spare them the fate of going to hell, but he still has them in their collection? Christine, you love an ambiguous ending. So I was thinking of you as we were getting the the last shot, panic, pulling out and seeing Krampus's room. I still thought it was a little of a cop out, but I don't know. I wanted them all just to be in the fiery pit of hell. And then, you know, <laughs> instead of like a, like a men in black oh my god they're just in their own universe so at the end of the day i kind of enjoy that this movie about a dysfunctional family uh ends with the idea that this family is so dysfunctional that they must be cast into some kind of krampus hell purgatory snow globe scenario so i I think krampus is saying the film that there is really no hope that that a family can be so dysfunctional that it's best to just throw everybody into hell and to allow this family to continue existing in any way, shape, or form. I think that's deeply cynical, but also something kind of comforting that at the end of the day, if things get so bad during Christmas that Krampus will come for you and just take you off of this plane of existence into some other realm. That's like you've had quite a holiday. (laughs) (laughs) What a film to kick off 2023. I'm sorry, everybody. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, what a film for the Arctic Blast, right? It's like sweeping mm-hmm. the nation. That's that's Krampus coming to town. 
slowly making his way across the whole nation. Or it's a weather system. Who knows? Nobody knows. Well, thank you, all my Butter with that co-host, for joining me for a Krampus discussion. Uh, so excited to see what 2023 has in store for all of us, all the films we're going to watch. And thank you, dear listeners and Movie John Podcast Network. We're thrilled to be a part of this podcasting family. We're thrilled to have all of you as listeners. We hope that all of you had a wonderful holiday season, that none of you got Krampused, unless you want to be Krampused. I could see a world where some people want to be Krampus. No judgment there. So, Sam, yes. Sam would. So, uh, just thank you so much for joining us for all of 2022. Hope you stick with us for 2023. And we'll catch you next week for another movie about another dysfunctional family. This has been a Movie John podcast.